1: Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got another great show lined up for you. Some of you have been enjoying a series of programs that we recorded from the state of Maine. One of the people that we featured on a short segment was Angeline David. Dr. David is the Health Ministries Director for the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. And she has graciously joined me again, this time by a phone connection. Angie, we so appreciated you on a previous show. We're glad you could spend a little bit more time with us today.
2: Thank you, David. It really is a pleasure to be with you again.
1: Now, for those who haven't met you, at least by way of radio or in person, I know you travel around the country and beyond. You have a very impressive resume. We don't want you to go through all your uh, academic achievements, but you've got at least three degrees attached to your name. I know that's not uh, the only thing that helps you speak with relevance in Indian country and beyond, but tell us a little bit about your academic background.
2: Certainly. My background is in public health uh, and with a focus in nutrition I have a doctorate in public health from Lobelinda University. I also have a Master of Health Science, which is also a public health degree from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And my my clinical side, I guess you could say, is dietetics. I am also a registered dietitian.
1: Well, we're excited about what you bring to the show American Indian Living, and we're really going to be addressing in this show something that a lot of people are very concerned about. It has to do with the whole subject of food addictions. Now, I know in medical circles, sometimes even that term generates a lot of discussion, but from the perspective of a public health professional and a registered dietitian, when you hear that phrase, food addiction, what do you think?
2: Well, you know that term is um, often misunderstood when we're talking to a general uh, lay audience, a non-medical professional audience. Uh, we have what we think of as bad habits that I just can't stop eating this food uh, when I you know you eat one and you just keep going. We have uh, foods that are that are attractive, more attractive to to us some people say, oh, I just love salty foods. Some people say, I just love uh, sweet foods. I can't give up my desserts. Well, you know, some of those may be actual clinical addictions, but maybe some of them are not. Um, we actually have very specific criteria when a doctor, when a psychologist, a psychiatrist is actually diagnosing an actual food addiction. And interesting Interesting, I've just found some, um, some research that shows that maybe about 20% of, of females over the age of 35 actually have a true food addiction.
1: Really? So they meet the medical criteria for addiction?
2: That's right. The study that I'm looking at was done among a population of females over age 35, and most of them were overweight or obese.
1: So, Dr. David, tell us about what those criteria are, because I've got people listening. I mean, thousands of people tune into the show, and right now, we're raising questions. I mean, people are saying, well, could I be one of these people that have a food addiction?
2: When you look at addictions in general, there are about seven or eight different criteria that will be used. One of which is that the substance, in this case, we're talking about food, uh, the food is is eaten in a larger amount and for a longer period than intended. Now, how do we judge that when we're talking about food and we eat three meals a day or maybe more? Um, You know, we're, we're eating it in an excessive amount, but really to the point where we are craving the food and it starts to actually have some kind of a biological or physiological effect on us. Mm. Uh, we also find that individuals who, who try to give up that addiction, they may have tried and failed and tried and failed. So there's been attempts at overcoming this addiction, but the drive, the biological drive, um, and there are actually some chemical reactions that happen in your body when it's a true addiction. Um, also, what we find is that individuals who are truly addicted, they devote a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of thought into feeding that addiction, into using that substance. So you're constantly thinking about where am I going to get the food from? Is it, is it time to eat? What, what am I going to eat? How am I going to do this? And then spending a lot of time, I need to go to the store. I need to... Uh, make sure I get this or get that. Now, one, uh, one of the criteria, and there are a few others, but one that I think really makes a big difference is that oftentimes individuals may actually, um, you know, they understand that there's a negative effect to what they are experiencing, to that item, that addiction,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and yet they're incapable of stopping. Hmm. They just don't have that ability to say, I understand, but I just am driven to it uncontrollably.
1: Wow. So basically, these are people that when we speak about food addiction, we're usually speaking about certain specific foods. Is that safe to say?
2: Well, that's interesting as well, because it could be certain specific foods. It could be something such as salt where an individual is is so addicted to having salt in their diet that they continually increase the amount of salt in their foods. They have to keep adding more in order to have that same satisfaction. Hmm. Um, However, it can also be just the amount of food that an individual eats. Maybe you are unable to stop eating once you start, even though you're completely full, but you're unable to to put the food down, to say no to the second or third or fourth helping. So it could be the amount of food. Now, it also can be the frequency of eating. So you're constantly going back and back and back. Um, It's not just a snack here or there. It's a consistent and persistent need to have food in your mouth.
1: Wow, this is remarkable. So historically, I've often thought of, when I see patients, of people who had specific foods that maybe were problem foods for them and have said, wow, I mean, this looks like an addiction. But you're really expanding the dialogue here because for some people, the relationships may be so complicated that it's not just limited to some bad food choices it may even include, you know, quote, healthy foods that they're just consuming in excess.
2: Absolutely, that's right.
1: So if someone who's listening to the show, Angie, is saying, this sounds like they're talking about me, is there help available?
2: Yes, um, certainly we do want to encourage anyone who is really struggling with an addiction, whether it's to food or or any other thing, uh, we do want to encourage you to seek the care that you need. If you have a physician, uh, talk to your physician and and see what are the resources that they have. They may have to refer you to even a counselor, a therapist. Um, a dietitian may also be able to provide you with those resources, may also be able to be a part of the team that helps you recover from the addiction. The extent of the care that you need may depend on how severe the addiction actually is.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Angie, you mentioned earlier, as you were telling us about your background, that you're a registered dietitian, among other things. Have you ever worked with individuals who had some of these issues? And if so, can you share us a story maybe that has some encouraging insights for us?
2: Yeah, certainly. I, I have had some patients who, uh, although they may not have been diagnosed with an addiction, but I can see the the signs there. Um, oftentimes, these individuals have been under incredibly stressful situations.
3: Mm. They
2: are very resource poor, so they're actually lacking in the ability to find ways of coping with life in general. Um, they've had stressful events. Uh, some of them have. Gone through traumatic events, and so the food had become a system of coping for them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, these individuals, what we need to do is actually determine where is the addiction really coming from. If if it's from trauma, we need to work with them on coping with the trauma. Um, if it's if it's a lack of resources, a lack of of a place to go to get. A healthier live a healthier lifestyle. How do we help them change those behaviors so that they are actually living a, a more healthy lifestyle? And what I found in my practice is that this is a long- term process. Mm-hmm. We really do need to work with them over time. Um, the The addiction may not be done away with just in a week or a month or even a couple of months. But it is certainly very possible to to break free.
1: Now, when you and I were together, Dr. David, in Maine, I know that you were there in that venue because you were especially working with a group that was helping people deal with addictive behaviors from a very broad perspective. And you are someone in the organization you represent, the Seventh-day Adventist Church and their Their Health Ministries Division, you have actually put together a program to help people and to help faith communities, especially, deal with addictions. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, we have the Journey to Wholeness program, which is a 12 step program that is very similar to what was developed originally for Alcoholics Anonymous using the system of a support group to help individuals. Uh, deal with their addictions, uh, giving them the tools to, to recognize their addictive pattern, helping them see where the, the greater uh, temptations or barriers are to recovery, and supporting them throughout that time. So we are encouraging, whether it's a congregation, whether it's a, a clinic, a, a hospital, a school, to, to use the material that we provide to form support groups to help those who are struggling with an addiction.
1: So the name of the program you mentioned was called Journey to Wholeness. Have I got that right?
2: That's right, Journey to Wholeness. And the material can be obtained on our website, which is adventistrecovery.org.
1: Okay, Adventist. That's right. Recovery dot o-r-g that's right so angie we've just got uh, a short time left in this segment but for individuals who say okay i know i've got a problem with eating i've got weight issues but i don't think i've got an addiction are there some simple weight loss strategies that we could get into in the next segment and if someone's got to rush away what would some of the high points be that you could just throw out there right now
2: Certainly, we can talk about uh, the importance of physical activity, um, of having a regular routine for your physical activity. Also, controlling portion size is one piece that we often look over, but portion size is very important for weight management. And then the power of sleep is another key to, to really maintaining a good body weight.
1: Well, this is great. If you're listening to American Indian Living today and you're afraid you might fall asleep during the show, I just hope you're not driving. But Angie is going to be sharing with you some of these amazing things. Some years ago, if you're a regular listener of American Indian Living, and we're going way back, Angie, this was quite a while ago, but we had a a guest who actually had written a book that she called Sleep Away the Pounds. So we're going to talk some about the physiology of sleep and how that relates to weight control, as well as things that you've been hearing about, exercise, portion control. Dr. Angie David is going to be back with more in our next segment of American Indian Living. She is the Director for Health Ministries, North American Division of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She is a Doctor of Public Health and also has uh, some additional public health and dietetics training. You do not want to miss these cutting-edge insights. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. DeRose. Don't go away.
0: Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's one 800 775 Four six, seven, three. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out.
4: For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at WRInstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency
2: medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim.
4: When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke, know the signs, act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke.
5: If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Dr. Angeline David. We're speaking about addictions, and now we're speaking about weight issues. It's a big concern, and this is not a concern, of course, that's limited to any demographic group in the United States or beyond. Obesity concerns are huge issues in North America. In Indian country, I've dealt with people who uh, have no problem at all on the weight loss front, and other people who really have their struggles, who've come to me as a physician, have come to uh, seminars that I've run. And this is the same of people, again, in any racial and ethnic group. So it's a huge problem, isn't it, Angie?
2: Yes, it certainly is. Uh, We know that throughout the United States, it's almost at about 20 to 25% of adults struggle with obesity, and our young children now also are having the same issue.
1: So obesity is one thing, but if we want to expand the scope of the dialogue a bit, we could just speak about people who are overweight. Is that an even larger number?
2: Yes. uh, Those who are overweight, uh, which is really classified as having a body mass index between 25 and uh, 29, um, yes, we certainly do have a large proportion of our population who are facing just that issue.
1: So basically, a lot of us would be benefited by trimming down. And there are some relatively, at least conceptually, simple strategies that can help. As we were leading into this segment, Dr. David, you mentioned three things immediately came to mind. Exercise, portion control, and adequate sleep. Can you help break down some of those things for us?
2: Well, certainly. And if we were to just back up a little Mm -hmm. and look at this from a broader perspective, all three of those items are involved in our lifestyle. Okay. And really, that's what we want to focus on when we're talking about weight management. And really, I'll say this, we were talking about food addiction. Even when we're talking about working through addiction, is establishing a healthy lifestyle so that you can have your health benefits last a lifetime.
1: Wonderful. So go ahead and help us see what some of those lifestyle elements would be that would help with like you said, any kind of addiction, but especially if people are struggling with their weight.
2: The first one I want to talk about is sleep. And I, I want to address it because we don't often see the link between our sleep habits and our weight issues um, and, and you know, really our food cravings as well. And it's very important that we get an adequate amount of sleep during an appropriate time of day, or I should say during the nighttime. Mm
3: -hmm. The
2: reason is because sleep actually influences the hormones that tell our body when it's hungry and when to stop eating. Our two hormones that are particularly involved, and there are a few, but two that uh, especially are involved are called ghrelin and leptin, and both of these are affected by getting enough sleep.
1: So basically, there are chemicals that the body makes that are telling the brain to be satisfied. Is that uh, safe to say?
2: That's right. The hormone or the chemical ghrelin actually tells your body when it's time to eat. It signals your hunger pang. But if you don't get enough sleep, then you actually have too much ghrelin in your body. And so Mm -hmm. you might be more hungry than you would normally and so then you're going to eat more. Now, on the other hand, the other hormone called leptin actually tells your body when to stop eating. It's your shutdown hormone. However, when you're sleep-deprived, you actually have less leptin in your body. So you have more of the trigger that's telling you eat, eat, and less of the trigger that's telling you stop, stop, we've had enough.
1: Mm. And
2: that just makes for a bad combination. It means we're going to eat more.
1: Now, I've heard other people try to tie in inflammation with this whole process as well. And, uh, you know, lack of sleep, somehow worsening inflammation. Is that part of this uh, relationship or is that just a whole other subject?
2: Well, inflammation is very, very complex. And a lot of different factors do play into inflammation. Um, and I wouldn't, I, I can't say for sure that a lack of sleep, Drives inflammation, or if it's which is you know it's the chicken and the egg type of conversation. Is it too much food and certain types of food that's driving the inflammation? Um, But but we do know that individuals who do carry more body weight do have higher inflammation within their body, and that of course leads to other health issues such as heart disease, even Mm -hmm. diabetes. Um, and, and stroke.
1: So basically, there's things we can do that can help us maintain a better body weight, and one of those is simply getting enough sleep.
2: That's right. That's right. Getting adequate sleep, preferably during the nighttime, getting what's recommended is about eight hours of sleep for an adult during the nighttime. Uh, now, for individuals who work at night, of course, you know, making sure that you do get that, that sleep during the daytime Uh, and allowing your body to adjust that time clock.
1: Very good. So sleep is something we can prioritize if we want to lose weight. I mean, it seems somewhat counterintuitive because you would think, well, I need to exercise more, I need to take more time and maybe preparing my foods more carefully and shopping better. But if you're cutting yourself short on sleep, you may be defeating some of the benefits of those other healthy behaviors. Yes,
2: that's true. And when it comes To, as you mentioned, making time for exercise. Yes, certainly we want to do that because that is an important component to a healthy body, but it should not take away from the other healthy parts of the lifestyle, such as the healthy eating, the sleep, the stress management. So it's about finding a balance between all of these different factors that are affecting your health and, in this case, your weight.
1: So let's talk about that point of exercise. Are there things that you as a public health professional find are pitfalls to the average person, things that uh, are not getting out there as far as the messaging that may be keeping people from getting on a good exercise program?
2: Well, one of the important things is to actually remember that although exercise is a key to managing your weight, exercise on its own does not actually help you lose weight. So in other words, we can just exercise and exercise and exercise all we want, but if we're not improving our diet, if we're not getting that sleep, if we're not taking care of other aspects of our life, we may not actually have that weight loss that we're looking for. We may drop some, but it's probably going to come back once we change up that exercise routine.
1: Mm. Yeah, we actually found that in some research we did some years ago that uh, people, a lot of people were surprised. I mean, we, like you, had known of of the literature out there, but even with a, you know, very structured 10-week exercise program, we saw relatively little in the way of weight change. I think the best groups maybe lost five pounds, which would be, you know, half a pound a week. And a lot of people, when they hear data like that, they're very surprised because the perception is that exercise is so important, and yet it is really important, isn't it, even though it may not be sufficient itself?
2: Absolutely. It truly is important, and we don't want to neglect it. Now, what happens as you begin exercising or as you increase your exercise level is that you may be switching from fat, body fat to muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So the weight itself may not change terribly much because muscle actually weighs a little heavier than fat cells do. So you may be building muscle, um, and you may not be... uh, You're more toned as well, and those are actually very important because it improves the overall health of your body. It improves your circulation as you exercise. It improves your stamina. It also helps you prevent injury, um, just in doing daily motions. So, getting your body into a better physical condition is really what exercise. One of the benefits of exercise, and that in and of itself is a benefit.
1: Well, Angie, our time is uh, slipping away in this segment, and I know your time for the entire interview is uh, is slipping away. So give us some of the high points in the area of portion control. How can that help people trim down?
2: Okay, portion control is very important because what you're doing is you're looking at the amount of calories that you're eating um, and looking at the quantity of food. So what you want to do is optimize your nutrition, and minimize your calories. Mm. So optimizing your nutrition means you want to eat more whole foods, uh, more fruits, more vegetables, whole grains, fewer of the refined products, the salty, the the sweet, refined sugared products, uh, things such as sodas and potato chips that carry a lot of calories, but very little actual nutrition. Well, One of the things that If you want to look at a specific um, part of food that you want to aim for is fiber. And I really encourage increasing your fiber intake, which, again, comes from fruits and vegetables, beans, nuts, whole grains such as brown rice. That fiber is actually going to help you fill up sooner, and it helps you stay feeling like you're full for a longer period of time, so you naturally tend to eat less that way.
1: Well, great points, Dr. David. Our time has just about slipped away. I know you've got a website where people can get more information. Please give that out one more time.
2: Absolutely. You can go to org for general information on health, some health education resources and tools. And if you want to look for a, a journey to wholeness support group, you can go to AdventistRecovery.org
1: We've got to run. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got more coming up in the second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. We've got a lot more to come.
0: American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's one 800 775 4673.
4: So, you want to be a hero? Here are some ways to get the job.
3: Shee-haw!
4: Hunt down that killer shark. Shee-haw! Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke.
5: Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org. Or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose, we're continuing a show that is focused on addictions and recovery. And we've actually done something unusual as far as the second half of this show. Instead of recording it from our studios in California, we have actually relocated to the venue of the National Congress of American Indians. We're actually beginning a series of shows right here, and it just seemed like the creator was connecting the dots because... Our first guest is someone who compliments the topic that Dr. Angie David was speaking about so well. So even though the ambiance is very different, we've got a guest sitting in front of me who actually is here to speak right about this topic. His name is Bob Parrish. Bob's a registered nurse. He's a certified addictions registered nurse. He's also got a master's in public health. And, Bob, you've got deep roots in Indian country as well, right?
6: You know what, uh, from the time I was born, our family has always treasured its Native American heritage, which uh, hails from Northern California, and uh, the tribe there is called Bear River Bend, and uh, it's one of the three Wiat tribes in Northern California.
1: And you're actually uh, a registered tribal member. Uh,
6: registered with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mm-hmm. So, right, I've never lived on the, the reservation location. But um, all of my life, you know, we've had that uh, heritage, and uh, we're so proud of it.
1: And I know you've worked in Indian country in many different places. California, you were here not far from Phoenix at one point, right?
6: That's right. You know, for several years, uh, we had an opportunity of doing health education, you know, a little bit on the Navajo Reservation, a little bit on the Hopi Reservation, and then in the south a little bit uh, to Hoda Otham and uh, so cooking schools, health educations, you know, uh, how to improve your blood sugar, and uh, just the basic things about health education that go a long ways toward enhancing your, uh, your physical life.
1: Now, Bob, you've got this diverse background, and we've been speaking on the show about recovery. Of course, addictions are something that run across racial and ethnic lines. It's not an Indian country issue. It's a human issue. And yet we know in Indian country, just like any other demographic group, there are challenges in this area. You've been working, especially in the addictions community, and you've been working in inpatient settings as well fairly recently, right?
6: That's correct. Up to one year ago, uh, I was the substance recovery nurse for Napa State Hospital, one of the five state hospitals in California. Uh, that's operated by the state, but the only hospital of the five that actually has a substance recovery program.
1: So let's step back because Dr. David was speaking a lot about community-based interventions and recovery. Let's talk about that person who's tuning in today to the show or someone who's listening and is thinking of a family member, may have a serious drug or alcohol problem, Some of these addictions are actually dangerous to tackle on your own, aren't they?
6: They could be because I know that there's uh, some counties have substance recovery programs where you can go and live for three months and, uh, and then, uh, so there's a few state programs as well where you can have the whole gamut of health all the way from social workers to psychologists, psychiatrists, health education, where you would also have nutritionists or dietitians working, you know, uh, from many different angles. And uh, the more disciplines that a person could have available to them, because there's so many of these things that uh, impact our mind and our health. And uh, you know, when we can be more physically healthy then, you know, we're going to begin to understand the concepts of recovery better and uh, be in a better position to implement some of them.
1: So let me see if I hear what you're saying, Bob. I hear you saying if we can be connected with some type of multidisciplinary team, if people are looking for, out for our physical health as well as for our mental health, a narrow-minded focus just on the addiction may not be doing you the greatest service. Am I hearing you right?
6: That's right, because we are physical, we are mental, we are spiritual, we are social beings. And to only focus on uh, as good as many programs are, uh, but to only focus on one little area of how to get rid of alcohol, for example, and you know, learning the all that has done to me, While that is good and that is necessary, there's, it is a broader picture of health that can supplement and actually move somebody from just thinking that this is just a, an alcohol problem to a a larger lifestyle issue that, that needs to be addressed as well for success.
1: You know, that's one of the things I appreciated about Dr. Angie David's segment. And I know you weren't able to uh, to hear that before we're doing the interview, Bob. But she really comes, uh, and, and the group that she works with really comes from this perspective of whole person health and really trying to optimize really all the input. So this is really going along exactly with what we were talking about. I'm concerned, though, I'm just going to be honest with you, Bob, because sometimes when we speak about people getting free from addictions, uh, I've seen it. I've seen it even as a physician, where people, we may not be talking even about an addictive medication, but someone starts to see the concerns that exist with pharmacologic agents. It may even be a prescription drug, and the person thinks, well, the best thing I can do is just get rid of this, just throw it away, and yet with certain drugs, and I'm, I'm thinking of alcohol as, as one of them, to abruptly stop use could be potentially dangerous or even life-threatening. Did you actually see some of those scenarios in the hospital?
6: Uh, I was never actually in a, um, like an intake facility okay. where somebody uh, needs to detox uh-huh. and... Uh, Although I have seen people go through the DTs, you know, in other settings just in the course of working as a nurse mm-hmm. when somebody comes in in that condition. But the treatment program that I was in pretty much was they had already gone through detox. And actually, the um, the clients that I had the privilege of working with were uh, people who had gone through the criminal justice system okay because of uh, drug or alcohol use. use. They had you know, sometimes committed horrible crimes. Mm. And uh, so they entered the penal code system in California, and uh, they were committed as um, unable to e- maybe even go to trial, incompetent mm. to uh, understand the process. And uh, so it varied at various different degrees. And so then they would end up coming through, you know, my classes, uh, which were basic knowledge classes on uh, substance re- abuse and substance recovery. And because these were penal code uh, patients in a clinical setting, even one of the classes that we had was called, and you would maybe think why something like this, but we even had a class called criminal and addictive thinking because huh. those two things go along hand in hand. When substance abuse is in my life, I'm not thinking clearly. I'm not making good decisions. So uh, criminal thinking often leads to addictive thinking, which tragically, of all the patients I think that I had, you know, in the two years that I was, you know, one of the instructors in the program, there wasn't anybody that uh, that I ever met, whether they were in my classes or not, that had not had substance abuse and as a re- result, had, that had led them to criminal activity and then through the penal code system into the state hospital. Mm-hmm. As unfortunately, a person that the state of California says, we can't trust you to be on the street until there are some changes that take place in your life. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you mentioned this uh, direction between addictive behaviors and then criminal behaviors. And then earlier, you mentioned. Criminal behaviors leading to addictive behaviors—is it really a two-way street, or does it usually go from the addiction to criminal activity? In your experience,
6: well, what I saw, Dr. Deros, was pretty much uh, so often the um, it was addictive uh, you know behaviors that led to either uh, inadvertently. For example, I'm thinking of one person who had just did it. Uh, a horrible addiction process with alcohol, just could not leave it alone, mm-hmm. was totally irresponsible with his behaviors, wanted to buy a car, went to a dealer. Uh, to a car dealer? To a different? car dealer okay. to buy a used car. And so the um, he went for a ride, to t- a test ride. Well, I mean, he was you know, under the influence at that time. And he crashed and he killed the owner's son oh, of my. that
1: dealership. Who was riding in the car with him?
6: Yep. And, wow. and then he survives. And that was just one instance of many. And uh, you know what I saw was that tragically when somebody, you know, has an addiction either to alcohol or to some kind of drug activity, um, it just led to criminal behavior mm-hmm. that a person maybe never would have done. Right. If it had not been for not being to evaluate, you know, is this a good thing to do? Or, or being totally unaware of the criminal activity that they may even be involved in mm-hmm. because of the uh, the influence of those street drugs in many cases.
1: You know, one of the things I've noticed, Bob, is in dealing with patients of mine who've either had problems with addictions or who've been... Uh, to be honest with you, I've, I've seen patients who other providers have felt they had an addictive problem, and the patient was uh, really not happy to have that label. And almost all the time when there's this dialogue, the person will say something to me, I'm not a bad person, Dr. DeRose. I'm not an addict. I really don't have an addictive problem. So it's almost like in many people's minds, lay people's minds, there is this connection somehow of addictive behaviors with behaviors that are somehow not socially acceptable. And yet at the same time, many of these people, once once they break free of the drugs, once they're clean and sober, these are some of the, I mean, I know, I have friends who have that history, who are people that I would uh, trust with my home, my family, uh, you know, the list could go on and on.
6: The patient population that I worked with for two years were, were pretty much all young men. Mm-hmm. And being in a clinical setting, they were more or less away from almost all chemicals other than the medications that they were, you know. Uh, some of them had what are called dual diagnosis, which maybe meant uh, uh, psychiatric diagnosis that went along with a substance recovery diagnosis, a substance abuse, you know, diagnosis and uh, when they were not on the street drugs or the alcohol i want to tell you there's no, they were as normal as you and me mm-hmm. you know what i mean and um i mean all of them had great potential infinite potential in their lives you know when if they could find the solution wow. you know what i mean and and begin to think differently about you know the activity the substances that they had allowed into their lives for whatever reason
1: We have been getting some great information from cutting-edge health professionals. We heard first from Dr. Angie David. We've been speaking with Bob Parrish, a registered nurse and a certified addictions registered nurse. Bob is going to be with us for our final segment. I want to encourage you to stay by because we've got more to come. Some things that can perhaps help you and those that you love really fortify yourselves as far as not going down this path in the future. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away. There's more to come.
0: Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
4: You're listening to Dr.
0: David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with registered nurse Bob Parrish. Bob not only has an RN degree, but he's a CARN and an M-P-H. Bob, uh, tell us what those letters refer to.
6: Well, the CARN is from the uh, International Nurses Society on Addictions, and it is their certification for a registered nurse working in the area of addictions. Of course, the MPH is not miles per hour, as many people think. It's not every sign in the U.S., Uh but it actually means a a master's degree in public health, and the area that I specialize in in that area was uh, global health or international health because I used to live in Southeast Asia.
1: Oh, really? So you not only have the Native American heritage, but you worked in Asia, Southeast Asia.
6: Mostly in Thailand and Cambodia. So as an ESL teacher, got a couple of schools started over there because English language is such a uh, desired component for many families over there that are wanting to pursue further education in the U.S. or some English-speaking country.
1: Very good. So, Bob, regardless of what culture we're in, whether it's Southeast Asia, whether it's in the heart of Indian country whether it's in an urban area that has a very low Native population. We've been speaking about substance abuse problems. They cut across those racial and ethnic lines. And in today's show, whether it's been me speaking with you here in this venue of the National Congress of American Indians in this live exhibit hall, or whether it was speaking with Dr. Angie David over the telephone. The the challenge, I think, is not just knowing where to get help, but also to realize that We don't have to go down this path. What have you found, Bob, in your experience working with especially First Nation peoples that can keep people away from the drugs and alcohol in the first place?
6: While most of my experience has been with people that already, for whatever reason, through their friends, maybe even through their families, and I remember uh, even right here in Arizona, one of the first families that I met, I was just driving around on one of the reservations here and somebody stopped me and said, what are you doing here? And I says, well, you know, this is why I'm here and this is who I am. And, well, you want to come to our house? You know, we're having a party right now. And so, well, a little reservation, but uh, uh-huh. on the reservation. Uh-huh. But I said, sure, you know what I mean? And so I, there I met a man. He says, "I'm in constant pain. what am I going to do? I can't afford the medication. alcohol is cheap mm. and so I'm going that way f- because of that reason and so I know that there's many different reasons why somebody might choose uh just from an economic i mean I don't think that was a good decision for somebody right. to solve their pain problem by uh with alcohol, uh-huh. but that was one of the things that led him you know to have that addiction okay and uh but you know um I just say." What can a person do? Look for some good role models and uh, find out who's going somewhere in life. Whether it, I would hope that it would be somebody's parents or somebody's friend, yeah. maybe it would be uh, somebody who is, has a healthcare background. Okay. Look for a role model and just say, you know what, um, or maybe it might even be sometimes somebody who had been down that road. And, you know, and had come back. Uh, I know that um, there's health educations in the school systems. So I think it's possible. But, I mean, the choice is ultimately going to be, will I look at what my friends are doing and maybe even sometimes what my family is doing? And am I going to go down that road? Can Am I seeing what's happening to people? And is that where I want my life to be? I, I read a story recently um of a young lady who actually saw her parents going down the wrong road with alcohol mm-hmm. and she said, you know what, I'm going to move out of here. And she actually moved into a little hut and found a little bit of support. She just had to distance herself a little bit, you know, from her immediate family and um, she made the choice, I want a better life. And mm-hmm. I don't want to, um, as much as I love my family and my parents and my brothers and sisters, I'm just going to distance myself far enough, and, and that wasn't very far, but far enough so that I'm not under the constant influence of of the alcohol and, and then the behavior that goes along with that.
1: No, I mean, those are great observations. And I think we've heard through the stories that you've told, Bob, or the stories you've alluded to, really... It's so easy to go down the wrong path in life, and it all starts out with something as innocent as a party and just having fun and just having a break when things are difficult, but it's a dead-end street or a street that ends up in the criminal justice system or in a rehab hospital, if you're lucky, right?
6: And can you imagine how difficult it would be for any person to choose, I'm going to distance myself from my family because of their substance abuse I mean, that's got to be one of the, the most difficult things somebody could ever wrestle with. Mm-hmm. This is my family. How could I? But you have to say, uh, you know, I am going to take care of my life. I'm going to not be like this part, this aspect of my family. I'm going to love them. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to do everything I can to help them. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can't. I just need a little bit of distance so that uh, I don't end up going down that road myself.
1: Now, Bob, the other part of what you've done over the years that I think is so significant is you've seen people get help in the area of addictions or staying free from addictions by recognizing that there is a creator, a loving creator that wants to help people. Tell me a little bit about how that played out when you were working in a state hospital. I mean, that's not normally a place where we would think is particularly friendly to speaking about spiritual things.
6: Uh, that is so true. I met many psychologists and many psychiatrists who were imminent in providing services in those areas that were needed for the patient population that is there. Mm-hmm. But th- and there's another aspect of what could have been done. And I'm thankful that I could be there with this other perspective and that that we are also spiritual beings. I was so pleased in the classrooms that I got to use, mm-hmm. for example, they posted the 12 steps of AA in very large posters okay. so that somebody could actually sit there and they call it working the steps. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I think that Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous, you know, those were the three basic programs that were available to the patient population that I was working with. I think one of the reasons that those programs have such a long-time acceptance and long-time success in helping people is that the name of God is in almost every single one of those 12 steps as uh, reaching out and realizing that there's a creator that, uh, that I'm responsible to and that can actually help me make choices and can lead me to sobriety. You know, maybe I, I might be a family member. Maybe the, the substance abuse may not be part of my experience, but maybe there's somebody in my family that I can direct in a spiritual way because that's just part of our being, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we can't ignore the whole being So there is a supreme being. There is a creator. He does care for us. We can call upon him and ask for help above and beyond ourselves to give us the courage and the perspective that my life can be better.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And I know that's one of the things that people often deal with in the area of factors that lead them to substance use, whether it's, as you mentioned, that story of the gentleman who had chronic pain, often people lack hope, and that's true whether it's lacking hope for relief from a chronic pain condition or whether it's lacking hope as far as their financial, their economic situation, their social situation. But what I really hear you saying, Bob, is if we give people that hope, if we help them to see that there's that spiritual dimension, that loving creator, that can often make a a big difference in keeping people drug-free, even if they've gone down that path in the first place.
6: And I would like to be real clear that uh, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the social workers, you know, that I had, you know, an opportunity to rub shoulders with during that time, uh, they all offered very valuable insights uh, in behavior and uh, in psychiat- in the psychiatric area that I saw uh, that could do nothing, but could help somebody. But with the added dimension of the spiritual area of a person's life, I just I saw that rounding out someone's thinking better. You know what I mean? Because I'm not just a, a blob of a person passing through this world. You know there there is there is an ultimate purpose in life.
1: Bob, thank you so much. Our time has just about slipped away. We do have to leave. But, Bob, I want to thank you so much for pulling away. You've been doing some screening activities right here at the National Congress of American Indians. Thanks for joining us here at the booth. You're welcome. Before you run off, let me tell uh, you that those of you tuning in for American Indian Living today, we've got a lot more information, a lot more resources you can take advantage of and uh, Bob himself, I know, probably points people in this direction. But that website, if you didn't get it earlier in the show, it's AdventistRecovery.org. It's www.AdventistRecovery.org. And if you need a phone number, it's area code 301-680-6733. One more time, area code 301-680-6733. Well, for all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has made a difference for you, for your family, and your communities. And as always, I'm wishing you the very best of health.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.